Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in American Studies. Today, I am so pleased to be joined by Peter C. Mancall, author of The Trials of Thomas Morton, an Anglican lawyer, his Puritan foes, and the battle for a New England. This book was published in 2019 by Yale University Press. Peter is the Andrew W. Mellon Professor of Humanities and Professor of History and Anthropology at the University of Southern California. Peter, congratulations on the book, and welcome to the show. Ryan, thank you. I'm really delighted to be here today and to have a chance to talk about my new book on Thomas Morton. That's great. Well, the book is The Trials of Thomas Morton, and uh, you know, I have to say, it reads like a, like a historical thriller novel, So I really can't wait to get into the story. But first, before we do that, I wonder if you could share with us a little bit about yourself. Oh, sure. I'm I'm happy to do so. Um, I'm an early American historian. I got my PhD in 1986. I began my career working uh, on the 18th century. And then I sort of um, had a revelation and I moved back to the early, early period. And so really since the late 1990s, so for the past two decades plus, I've been working on sort of the formative period of the English conquest and colonization of Eastern North America. And so um, my once I made that change, I, I've written several books, one on uh, the promoter of colonization, Richard Hacklett, called Hacklett's Promise. I followed that with a, with a book uh, about the last journey of Henry Hudson called Fatal, Fatal Journey. Uh, and then I turned, began to turn towards what became uh, this book on Thomas Morton. And at the same time, I'd done a series of lectures at Penn, which came out a couple of years ago, called Nature and Culture in the Early Modern Atlantic. Uh, but so I turned to Morton because I saw in Morton's story a way to really bring together a lot of the threads of things I was interested in. I've been fascinated for a long time in early New England. Um, I've been very eager to understand sort of what what encounters were sort of like on the ground. It, it, from my generation in graduate school, so I was in graduate school in the 1980s, we were all kind of concerned with things like the Columbian Exchange, a very important model. But a model that, though it explains much on a very broad scale, really sort of denies or sort of plays down individual agency. And it also really plays down the sense of contingency in history, like something happened and then it opens up new scenarios. So starting with my book on Hacklin and then into Hudson, I've really tried to sort of drill down into how can we understand these encounters on a much as possible personal level. And these people lived and died 400 years ago or more in some cases. The documentary evidence we have is very thin. But for me at this point in my career, it, it posed certain kinds of challenge. And as I was thinking about how to write this book, I mean, I had a lot of sort of models in mind. I worked with the renowned early Americanist Bernard Balin, who'd written this brilliant book on, on Thomas Hutchinson. And over the years, as I've taught graduate students in particular, I've gotten into sort of 
sometimes what I think of as sort of small books that tell very, that tell captivating stories by really drilling down. And two that had a really large influence on me, although it may not seem like it, because neither is about American history. But one is Natalie Zeman Davis's The Return of Martin Gare, and the other is Jonathan Spence's The Death of Woman Wong. So here's a book about early modern France and a book about pre-modern or early modern China. Yet in each of these, they sort of focus on an individual or a small group of people, and I think illuminated a world. And that's really what I hope to be doing in my work. And I hope, though it sounds rather grand, I hope I've done a little bit of that in this book on Thomas Morton. Yeah, that, that approach really comes through. Well, this book is about a fellow named Thomas Morton. What a character he is. I wonder if you can help us situate him a little bit. I mean, right from the start of his career, he seems to have a knack for getting himself into controversy. He marries this wealthy widow and then is immediately embroiled in a, in a battle with his son-in-law. How does that launch the career of this, of this young lawyer into a, a life of controversy? Yeah, no, it is a, it is a, great, it is a great question. I mean, so we don't know much about Thomas Morton's first years. I mean, I, I think he was born, and other biographers have said, I think he was born in the 1570s. Uh, he, he certainly has legal training. Uh, but he really starts to appear in in the record in a real sense when he marries um, a widow, Alice Will uh, Alice Miller, uh, in Swallowfield. And as soon as he actually meets he meets Alice Miller when he is trying to represent her her case, you know, after the the death of her husband George Miller Senior. And so he 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 meets this woman. They they get together. She has a a, a, a brood of children. Um, and immediately, I mean, almost instantaneously, the oldest one of these kids, who is George Miller Jr., believes, I think probably with a lot of good reason, that, that Morton has come to marry his mother for her money. I mean, it is a wealthy family. We know that from the will of George Miller Sr. And so this opens up this the first time that, that Morton comes into, I don't know if it's the public light, it's public in the sense that it's in courtrooms. But it certainly is when he emerges into what we would think of as an archive. That is, there began to be records about Morton. And the records are very detailed about these cases. They popped up in various courts. And they're very uh, explicit about alleged assaults that happened and improper behavior that happened. I mean, these kind of wild stories. And, and Morton sort of gives as much as he gets. And, you know, it's very hard re- as, a, as a historian to read back to try to figure out, What's going on? I mean, the court records in this case are are, are are so revealing, and they reveal not only sort of Morton as trying to get what he wants, but also this teenager, you know, George Miller Jr., you know, as someone who we would think might need some um, assistance, you know, these days. You know, I mean, what the, what he's quoted in the court records is saying, you know, which I have some of this book, you know, it's, it's quite amazing. You know, he walks into church. And he allegedly throws an elderly woman out of a pew, you know. And then when she says something, he makes a vulgar comment to her. Um, I mean, so he has a lot of of uh, maybe late adolescent energy. Uh, he then gets married, and there's all sorts of relations in there. And then Alice Miller, the you know George, Thomas Morton's wife, the widow of George Miller Jr., she's not as visible in the records as sort of the main uh, litigants who are Morton and and the youngest of her, uh, sorry, the oldest of her children, George Jr. So Morton appears there, and we begin to get a sense, or I got a sense at least, of a, of a litigious character. And as these trials go on, Morton at one point 
seemingly disappears. Um, and then, you know, later, you know, you can sort of reconstruct what happens. But if you read, if you just read the trial records, if all we knew about Thomas Morton was what was embedded in the trial records, you would think he was going to win his case. He was, this was going to be resolved in his favor. And then all of a sudden he's gone. Now, that goneness, of course, is what's important to me in telling the story, because this begins his relationship with going to New England. So Morton claims later on that he made, a, as far as we can tell, a first trip to New England in 1622, seems to go back, makes another trip uh, to New England, going to, at both times, I should say, to the colony of New Plymouth. Goes back to New Plymouth in 1624, 1625. The record's are slightly ambiguous on that point. He, he moves out of New Plymouth. He moves sort of north of the community that we think of as Bradford and the other settling. Uh, and he moves into a sort of an abandoned trading post and he sets up a little um, community or settlement of some kind in which mostly what he wants to do is trade with native peoples. Um, and then this would have gone on pretty much absent from the historical record, except that Morton happens to become a figure, becomes sort of the almost the stock comic tragic figure in, in what remains sort of the most important single history of early New England, which is William Bradford's Up Point Plantation, mm-hmm. a book that many of us read for all sorts of different reasons. We read it to understand the Pilgrim's uh, motivation for going. We read it to understand the religious drama, the religious debates that the Puritan, the Pilgrims, and then later Puritans would have. We read it. I've read it for years as trying to understand encounters between Pilgrims on the one hand and uh, these Southern New England Algonquin-speaking peoples on the other hand. Bradford is very Bradford's a very powerful writer. Uh, he he still elicits strong emotions. He has a certain way of writing which reflects his religious orientation to life. But but it's Bradford who really despises Morton, who gives Morton to posterity by writing about him in a Plymouth Plantation uh, in this one sort of um, dramatic moment in 1628, when Bradford and a small band of pilgrims decide, let's get rid of Thomas Morton. And they go to this place, which Morton had called Marymount for view of the sea, which became switched in American culture to Marymount, which is what Bradford does. Um, and it's this place that, that Bradford then describes in one of the really memorable scenes in Up Plymouth Plantation. And Morton then has, Morton, Morton he, he gives Morton the, one of the great cameo roles in American history. And it helps mm-hmm. establish a, more, a type of Morton that would go on forever. So that was sort of the first 10 years of Morton. There are other things that went on, but that sort of gives you a sense of getting Morton onto the stage. Well, th- that's the, there's this famous scene of, of the Maypole, um, which really becomes, um, it, it illustrates so much the, the tension that Morton faces with these religious uh, dissident settlers in the, plim- the, the, the pilgrims and, and the Puritans. So what is that, what is the significance of the Maypole? How does that exacerbate uh, the, the conflict between uh, between this kind of religious culture political war that's that's going on um, in in this very contested New England. Yeah, that's a great question, Ryan, because it because it co- does come to 
symbolize you know this conflict between between these two different groups of English um, colonizers. So mm-hmm. a maypole, the maypole it dates back centuries. Uh, it they it, across Europe. And they people erected maypoles, which tend to be very tall trees, cut down for the occasion. They would sort of decorate them with bright ribbons, and they would dance around them. And it would it would happen around planting season, right? So it so it was always sort of associated with fertility, um, and and to be fair, some amount of um, you know uh, we might say letting off steam. Someone like William Bradford would say debauchery, right? You know, it's how you describe that behavior sort of in, in how you see the world. So the Puritans in England, when they were not a powerful group, so in the last decades of the of the 16th century, they were they they, they despised maypoles. They they saw them as symbols of of pagan excess. I mean, Bradford in fact invokes a lot of those exact words. Uh, yeah. Bradford Lincoln's it to the mad excess of the, the Bacchanalians, you know, going back to ancient Rome, going back to these planting festivals. In fact, in England at the time, before uh, the Puritans would rise, as they did briefly in the 1640s, before that period, maypoles were common. The, the King of England saw no problem with maypoles. They, they, you know, they, they were fine. But to William Bradford, coming out of this very strong religious tradition which identified this as uh, a pre-christian um hedonistic rite in which the allegations that circulated around england were not only were people dancing around these maypoles but they would be going into the woods and then x months later these young women would be <laughs> babies so every sort of the every, many of the sins that the pilgrims and the Puritans sort of thought were bad, the, the pilgrims, I mean, contrary to our popular view, the Puritans and the pilgrims were not anti-sex, right? They had very large families. They had very loving families, but they were really, but they believed that sex was only appropriate within marriage. Like there's a famous story also in a Plymouth plantation of a group of these pilgrims um, putting on trial and then executing a 17-year-old boy for bestiality, right, uh, and following what they thought it was what Leviticus said they had to do. So they had very strong views about what was proper behavior. And so Bradford and the other pilgrims, when Morton is dancing around the Maypole, and they're they're singing and dancing, and they're writing these scurrilous, body verses, and they're entertaining, as Bradford says, these local Native communities, including consorting uh, with Indigenous women, Bradford sees this as it just triggers every response in him that this is wrong. And then the crucial thing, and one of the things that we forget when we talk about the Pilgrims and the Puritans, you could read this classically as someone like Mencken would have read it later. You could say it as a, the Puritans wanted to crack down on people having fun. What I try to do in the book, I hope, is to give some sense about why this behavior was so threatening to them. Once the you know, the Pilgrims and the Puritans, you know whether whether John Winthrop gave this big sermon on the Arabella that we know was a model of Christian charity, or not historians would debate it. How many people heard it? They would debate. But the idea that came out of this idea of the city on the hill, which gets embedded in American culture, they did take seriously, right? But they took it seriously, not that they would necessarily succeed. They took it seriously that 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 God, as they understood God, 
was always looking down upon them right, and judging them. And so once they identified a social, or in this case, a moral problem in someone like someone like Martin, then if you follow sort of Bradford's way of looking at it, they couldn't tolerate it because maybe it was a test from their God. So they had to eliminate it and root it out. And that explains this scene, which is comical in the way that Bradford writes about it, of of these of of the pilgrims with Miles Standish at their lead, Miles Standish, who, who Morton would then later mock as Captain Shrimp. They would come and they came armed and they found Morton's men so drunk that the only bloodshed was when one of Morton's guys falls over and cuts his nose, right? I mean it's played yeah. comedy. Uh the result, of course, is they do they do capture Morton and and send him back to England. But the Maypole is that sort of defining moment. And then and then it would have its own legacy in American culture. Yeah, and and this Maypole uh, episode is also um, around the same time that another theme is really um, that you're you're teasing out, and that Morton's approach not only was a was a different uh, religious or cultural model, but but also a very different way of interacting with the indigenous people. And this is another part of the conflict between the pilgrims. And one of the ways that they're they're fighting um, to get him charged is is that he's modeling a, 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 an alternative uh, relationship than what we know as as the 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 way that the native and English uh, histories will end up playing out. Yeah, that that's a wonderful question. That's exactly right. Um, you know, if you if you just read if you just picked up of picked up of Plymouth Plantation, you might think Morton is irreligious, right? He doesn't care. This isn't true. I mean, Morton, so far as all signs that we know, Morton was a fairly conventional member of the Church of England. I refer to him in my title as Anglican because I needed some way to say that he was not Puritan uh, mm-hmm. or Pilgrim. And you know, those terms are also sort of deeply problematic, but we'll leave those for other people to, to fight mm-hmm. about. Um, but what drew, what drew me to the book, what drew me to Morton uh, was that he had a, a different way of seeing the possible encounters with native peoples in North America. Yeah. Uh, there's been so much written, uh, all sorts of important things written about conflicts between English and indigenous in Eastern North America in the 17th century, you know, book after book after book. I mean, and really important things that have made us rethink, how do we talk about this period? How do we teach about this period? How do we think about this period? And it's not just in New England, the enormous moment that we're still in about the 1619 project suggests that what happened in the 17th century or how we talk about it really does have resonance today. One of the things that I wanted to do, I mean, I knew about Morton, as many people originally knew about Morton, is that Morton's, Morton writes a book, which I will probably get to in a couple of minutes. Morton writes a book called New English Canaan, in which he describes his relationship with local Native peoples, and he suggests um, he, he suggested in there that it would be possible to coexist. Uh, now, there's a big debate about whether what Morton would actually have been able to do had he gained power, because he never, he doesn't articulate a particularly powerful vision and he doesn't gather many people. Marymount, this little community, maybe has, what, seven, eight guys in it, like literally, like, like English guys who then bring indigenous people into trade, but it's not a big flourishing community. Neither, by the way, is Plymouth a huge flourishing community at the time. Um, but it, but you, 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 Morton could just be a, you know, just dismissed. 
So Morton has this different sense of how people could coexist. So there are really well-known books. If you're an early American historian, every early American historian has read books, brilliant books, like, like William Cronin's Changes in the Land or Neil Salisbury's Manitou and Providence. And in those books, Professor Cronin on the one hand and Professor Salisbury on the other, we use Morton. And Morton is very revealing uh, to, to try to understand nature or the nature of encounters. That is, they, they use it as a text among other texts. Uh, and as many people do, in fact, Morton was drawn on relatively recently in 2019 or so. There was a big study that came out of the Harvard Forest. Did Native peoples burn, use fire to clear, clear forests? And one of the things that was written up is people went back and, and referred to Morton again, just to sort of say he was a keen observer of nature. So he's always been there as a source that we sort of knew existed. So we knew about him. Once I got into the project, I realized I could use Morton to really understand really different philosophical approaches on the parts of English colonizers towards native peoples. It's, I, this has been really the subject of much of my work for the last 20 plus years, trying to understand what was in the minds of the English when they do this and trying to understand and recreate to the extent I can indigenous, indigenous views of these encounters with English. Uh, I'd written a book earlier in, in the mid-1990s about the alcohol trade and about the devastations that that had produced across Eastern North America. So... You know, the, understanding this kind of encounter is, is important to me to try to see if I can explain it. And I think that in our, in our current moment, I think when we, the farther back in the past we go, I think this is probably true, and you would know this from interviewing people and obviously from your deep reading history. In general, the farther back in the past we go, the less evidence we have. It's, it's not exactly a great insight, you know, to say that. But it does mean that we, we're, we're dealing with limited kinds of sources, and we're going back 400 years, and it's not surprising that the source material is, is somewhat more limited or vastly more limited than it would be for a topic in the 19th century or the 20th century or the 21st century. So the question is, how can we, using the evidence that's in our hands, to try to understand these questions, which are really central to the American experience. And when I say the American experience, when I use the word American in my works, I remember I mostly work about the 16th and 17th centuries, American in my book refers to Native Americans. It does not refer to later on in American history. So I'm really trying to understand the nature of these encounters. So what I see in Morton is someone who says what the Pilgrims and Puritans are doing is wrong. He critiques them. He uses his book to critique them. He also critiques their religious practice. In the process, he suggests he would do different things. And he it's really, really drills down into the questions, which we actually, I think we have renewed sense of today, questions about respect. You really get the sense that he believes he is respecting these indigenous people. He names people in his text. He talks about the desecration of one of his friends his mother's grave by the pilgrims, right? And he, he realizes that it's in these moments that you can you see much about how the future could unfold or the nature of the encounter. And I think it gives him a certain energy. So he has a very different perspective on the idea. It's not that, I don't want to give a sense that the pilgrims and Puritans thought that people couldn't coexist. I think that they did believe 
there could be coexistence. But there's a lot of reasons why it didn't happen. And then relations really break down by the 1630s. And we see that in the event that we still call you know, the Pequot War. And at that point, the debate starts to shift. But in those early years, I believe even the English thought there would be ways, even the Pilgrims and Puritans thought there would be ways to coexist. I think we can take a step back and say, maybe not with the way you were approaching the situation. Well, that's so interesting. Well, Morton is is repeatedly uh, shipped off and exiled uh, to England to face trial over um, his his crimes against the the, the Plymouth uh, the, and the Puritan establishment. But you, you note that while he might have been a, a, a nuisance uh, while he was in New England, he's he's an actual threat. <laughs> when he's back over in England. So could you talk a little bit about his partnership with Sir Ferdinando uh, Gorges and 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 how he even from afar continues to be a thorn in uh, in Winthrop and 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 Bradford's side. Sure. I, that's a, that's a great opening. So basically you know, as, as I was telling that story before in 1628 the pilgrims arrest Morton and they send him back to England. And they figure he's going to be persecuted, I mean prosecuted and He's not. Morton turns around in 1629. He returns. He makes a brief stop back in New Plymouth. Uh, basically, goes up to the, the now emerging Massachusetts Bay Colony, where he immediately gets in the face of John Winthrop, who was the governor of the colony. And Winthrop and Morton obviously despise each other from the start. And so Morton, in his way of describing things, basically said he was standing up essentially for the king uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that Massachusetts was going to organize its government. And so they, 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 they exile. So Morton is kicked back first by the pilgrims of New Plymouth, then, and that's in 1628-29, and then in 1631, the Puritans of Massachusetts Bay, they exile. This time when he goes back to England, right around then he, becomes, he, he falls into this little group of people around this man named Sir Fernando Gorgas. And Gorgas believes that he, Gorgas in 1606, for a group that knows the New England, New England Company, believes that he has, a, he has a legitimate right to all of New England. And that it predates and is superior to the right of either the pilgrims, who do land a little off where they're supposed to go, as well as the Puritans of Massachusetts. Yeah. So Morton does two things when he's back in, in London. First, he writes a book. But the book is suppressed. Um, you know, Puritan helped sort of quash this book. And we, we know that there are some sheets that survive, but basically the book is destroyed. But Morton has written it by then. We know that Morton has written it by then. Morton then gets together with Gorgas, and Gorgas gets to Morton, and he sees a guy. You've been kicked out of New England twice. You have legal skills. I want you to prosecute my case. My case is to get rid of these people. And the case hinges on a very specific issue, which is Gorgas Group wants the Massachusetts Bay Group, Massachusetts Bay Company, to send back the charter, the actual physical charter, the parchment charter, which has on it a portrait of the king and the king's seal and these ribbons. It's an official document. And so they go and they eventually go through courts and in 1635, they, they win, they win in court and an order goes out basically to Massachusetts. You must return the charter. What's so interesting to us, what's so interesting to me, I should say, is the importance that people place on the physical document of the charter. Like it wouldn't be mm-hmm. enough for the king and his ministers to say, 
your charter is vacated, it was wrong. Instead, they need the physical parchment back with them. Yeah. And so they send this order. The Massachusetts authorities, Massachusetts General Court says, yeah, no, thank you. And they don't <laughs> send it back. In the meantime, Gorgeous and Morton, but basically Gorgeous, fits out a really big warship, figuring he's going to go and sail across the Atlantic Ocean and, I don't know, in his mind, but bombard Boston until they get this charter out. Well, the ship is gigantic, and according to one witness that we have, it sinks in the docks before it ever goes anywhere. <laughs> so there is never this uh, invasion. The people in the Massachusetts General Court basically send back, say, yeah, we're not going to send you the charter. Uh, I, I say in my book, this is really the first time English authorities in North America said no you know, to, to royal officials. In fact, this happens in Massachusetts, does have resonance for later on in American history, but I mean, it is... You know, it is in some sense my, my version, you know, of a of a declaration of independence. We are not going, we are self-governing colony. We are not going to abide by this. As this is going on, as all these things are going on, Morton manages to get his book published in Amsterdam in 1637, New English Canaan. And New English Canaan is this, it's, it's a fabulous text. It's not a great book. Um, Bradford's is, is I read Bradford and I want to throw it against the wall because Bradford describes things which are horrific to modern sensibilities, especially his, you know, when they, when they execute a teenage boy, you know, for having sex with animals, when they surround the village and, uh, you know, the, this village on the Mystic River in 1637 and set it afire and shoot the people coming out. You know, he describes things which are just appalling and, and horrific. Right? And so to say, you know, there's something valuable, and this is is, is, is is challenging. As a work of literature, it has endured for 400 years. I mean, it, it survived. It was in manuscript. It was circulating hand-to-hand over the course of the 17th and the 18th century. And then since it was published in the 19th century, it's basically remained in print. And it's it, it's become one of the foundational texts of of sort of an understanding English under, English approaches to, to North America. New English canon isn't like that. New English canon basically breaks out as a classic, um, in many ways, a classic travel narrative. And the classic travel narrative is that the author establishes their expertise, and then it has certain parts of it. And those parts of a travel narrative are, you basically say, I went, that is, I am the eyewitness to be the reporter. This is what the land looks like. And you describe the land as much as possible. Here are the commodities that we could extract from the land. And here are the people who live on the land. And let me tell you about them. And this, this, so this is a genre, you know, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of fits into a genre. We don't tend to read as travel narrative. I read it as travel narrative because I have an interest in travel narratives. Anyway. Yeah. Um, and so it's, in that sense, so this book comes out in 1637. It comes out right around the time of the, what's known as the Quo Warranto case. This is the case that Gorgas wins, basically. And, and it's basically, saying to people in, in New England, you, you have exceeded your authority. By what warrant? You have, you've exceeded the authority, hence you have to send back the charter. When they don't do it, it presents what you could think of as a constitutional crisis, although events sort of move in other directions, because by the late 1630s, the political situation in England uh, is changing dramatically. Um, Charles I would become king, you know, coming in, you know, the, he's in deep disputes first, 
you know, with Scotland and then obviously in England and then it leads to war, right? The people in England essentially lose interest in much of New England. And so the, the, what New England historians or people in New England have always referred to as the Great Migration, which is the migration of about 21,000 Puritans from about 1630 to 1642, it really kind of dries up when people there. So the story of Morton, uh, you know, Morton is back in London and in the 1630s, he is, he and Gorgas are posing an existential threat to Massachusetts. People in Massachusetts basically push it off for the moment, right? But they don't know. Eventually, it becomes less of a crisis to them. But it's when, Mor- it's when Morton is in London is when he poses the great threat to, um, to Massachusetts Bay, to the extent that he poses a threat. Uh, and it tells us something about the legal culture of the time, right? That here is someone who could win in court, right? Who the king supported and yet could not, you know, uh, prevail on the ground, that there was simply no way for the English to enforce that ruling in New England. I mean, that to me was a really, not eye-opening, but yeah, it was somewhat eye-opening. And it really sort of reinforced this idea that we have as early American historians of the, of the importance of so-called self-governing colonies, right? You know, self-governing colonies had always been explained by historians as uh, practical, right? They should be self-governing because there's no way to supervise them. And then these issues get debated over the next couple hundred years. This self-governing sense of, you know, in the way the Massachusetts Bay people interpret it, as I see it, is different from just it's impractical. It's them saying, we don't have to listen to you. It really does sort of plant seeds of, of, of a different future. Now, they wouldn't have said at the time, we're disloyal, but it does plant that. But I want to make one more final comment. I know it's gone on, but just one more final comment on this point. In American history textbooks, we refer to the idea of self-governing colonies, right? We talk about the rise of what would become the Virginia House of Burgesses in 1619. This is an important moment. That's the other thing that happened in 1619 besides the arrival of enslaved Africans, which is what we mostly talk about 1619. We we typically, or historians in the past, I should say, have, have sort of hung on this idea of self-governing as an American invention. What I point out to people and various things, is yes, these colonies are self-governing, but they're not the first self-governing communities in North America. There are hundreds of indigenous communities which were self-governing long before Europeans arrived. So the concept of self-government is long-standing in North America. And so when we talk about it, when we toss off these things like, oh, self-government started in 1619 in the Chesapeake, or here the people in Massachusetts talk about self-governing, I want to put it into the context and say, yes, they are self-governing, along with the vast majority of human beings who live in North America, who in this early 17th century are native. Wow, yeah, that's that's so interesting. Now, of course, the tides start to turn um, for um, for for the Puritans when uh, Charles loses power, and there's there's a Puritan uprising, and and Morton makes uh, maybe a, 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 as the Puritans rise in England, he makes a calculated move that it might be safer for him to go back to New England. Uh, and it, it didn't, it didn't end well. And he, he's very quickly caught, tried and exiled and, and, and dies shortly thereafter. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, 
the end of Morton and, and then something of his afterlife. I mean, he managed to, to capture the attention of, of two U.S. presidents and at least one famous anti-Puritan, uh, the novelist uh, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne. So so who who did Thomas Morton become as a four century long literary character? Oh, that's, that's a wonderful question. So basically, to be brief, Morton decides to go back to New England in the early 1640s. The Massachusetts authorities arrest him. When they first arrest him, they arrest him in part. I mean, talk about the power of a book. You know, Winthrop writes, this guy wrote a book against us, right? So basically, he has told the world that we are terrible people. Well, we're not going to let that stand. So they basically throw him in jail. They throw him in bilbos in these shackles. I have a little image on the front of the book of a guy in shackles, who's supposed to be Morton. Um, and and they and they imprison him, but they don't know what they're imprisoning him for. I mean, they, they keep him in jail for a year. What do we do with this guy? Winthrop writes. Winthrop's journal is an amazing text. And Winthrop sort of writes, you know, we could have beaten him. We could have punished him. But, you know, he's old and pathetic. What are we going to do? So they send him north. They send him into Maine. That part, what we think of as the state of Maine. As it turns out, that territory the English had given to Sir Fernando Gorgas. So he would ignore Massachusetts and say, here, go settle. You can go have Maine. Uh, and Maine was going to be called Gorgiana at one point. And, and there's this whole, he has these elaborate paper schemes. They never amount to anything. But Morton goes up to a little uh, settlement called Acumenticus at modern day uh, York, Maine, where he basically, where he dies. I went looking for his grave and, and all the English graves from that period are gone, so you can't find it. But he, he dies around there. And you'd think logically that's the end of Thomas Morton, right? I mean, it was a guy, he had a guy with a vision. It was different. He got kicked out three times, whatever. But that should be the end of the story. But what's interesting about Morton to me is that that's not the end of Morton's story. And in many ways, Morton's antagonists keeps Morton's story alive. Bradford does the manuscript for Upland Plantation. He gives it to his nephew, whose name is Nathaniel Morton, who's not a relation to Thomas Morton, as far as we know. Nathaniel Morton writes a book called New English Memorial. It comes out in the middle of the 17th century. The manuscript continues to circulate. Thomas Hutchinson, in his history of Massachusetts Bay, uses the same manuscript, uses Bradford and whatever. So Morton's story keeps being told and told again. New English Canaan, published in 1637, almost disappeared from the planet. There are like 25 copies of it left. Um, so remember, the 1632 edition was destroyed, and the 1637 only sort of made it. Now, 25 copies isn't bad. There are books of which we have only one or two copies. <laughs> but nonetheless, it's not like it was a bestseller, and it wasn't reprinted. Mm-hmm. Then you get to the story keeps circulating, um, and then I pick up the story at the end of the 18th century again, where John Quincy Adams is ambassador over in Prussia, and he goes to a, a, a book sale and he buys this few little books sewn together, one of which is New English Canaan, uh, and he brings it home. And his father, John Adams, who you know, John Adams uh, had a John Adams was a brilliant revolutionary who I think I would say had a rather rough presidency, and then emerges from his presidency later to have this incredible relationship with Thomas Jefferson, where among other things, they talk about Thomas Morton, right? I mean, that was sort of like, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So the Adams family gets obsessed with Morton because it turns out that Marymount is on the land of the Adams family in the in the by the late 18th century into the 19th century. And so four generations of Adamses, who I talk about in the book have responses to New English Canaan. In the meantime, uh, um, an editor and also mayor of Washington named Peter Force republishes uh, New English Canaan in, in a series of tracts. It's unclear how widely spread they are. Okay. 
but his story is known. And so Hawthorne picks it up and Hawthorne, in a famous tale about the pilgrims of, of, of Marymount, uh, he does not talk, he does not name Morton in that story, but it's obviously the story about Morton. And then in another story, he does actually name Morton. So Hawthorne is, I think one could say, rather anti-Puritan in his views. And he sees them as problematic characters in a lot of ways. And so he starts to bring Morton back into current discussion. Charles Francis Adams Jr., so the great-grandson of John Adams, grandson of John Quincy Adams, um, does an edition of, of New English Canaan, comes out in the late 1880s. And then that becomes this text that then launches Morton into the, into the 20th century. What I found amazing, two last things on this point. One, when Charles Francis Adams Jr., he's a famous Civil War veteran, he's involved with the Union Pacific, he's a prominent guy, like all of these people, he had a one might think of fairly conventional, you know, Harvard education was presumed and they would live around the Boston area. I mean, he was an important sort of figure. He'd, he'd, he'd never edited a historical document before. And when he gets New English Canaan in his hand, it's really remarkable preface. He said, I don't understand this book. And he goes off and he recruits a series of experts to explain it. And it really gives you a sense of the wide range of expertise that Morton had what was then two and a half centuries earlier. So then Adam's edition brings it into the 20th century. And then all of a sudden Morton gets picked up again. And he sort of becomes, by the time of the 1960s, he becomes this sort of countercultural hero, a guy who sort of just stands in defiance of authority. Um, yes, there's this memorable scene, which I talk about in the book, from Philip Roth's novel called The Dying Animal, in which, uh, you know, it's a very problematic little book, Roth says, and Roth is much in the news now, so I'm not, you know, talking about any of that. But there is this moment in in the book where all of a sudden there's six pages on on Thomas Morton. And it's, a, it's sort of a, it's, it's told in the story of this um, inappropriate college professor celebrating Morton for his libidinous freedom, his licentious behavior. So that Morton sort of exists. And then near the end of the book, as, as all these stories go in these unpredictable directions, in 2011, Governor Deval Patrick declares Thomas Morton Day and says that New English Canaan represents important American values. And, you know, I came across that and I'm just, my head is spinning the idea that here's this guy exiled three times, twice by Massachusetts, you know, and now just wait long enough and I guess you, your moment comes. And so now Thomas Morton uh, is back. Just as a footnote, Maypoles have remained part of American history, uh, you know, throughout the whole time and they're celebrated regularly. But Thomas Morton, comes back as an exemplar of important American values for the 21st century. And that was, wow. you know, as a historian writing about someone who died in 1643, that is a gift I didn't expect to get. Wow. What, what a story. Well, I mean, you've been so generous with your time to share with us about the trials of Thomas Morton, but I wonder, um, what are you working on next? What can we be looking forward to from you? Well, I hope... If all goes according to plan, I've been working for some years uh, on what will be volume one of the Oxford History of the United States. Um, And uh, my book will end um, 100 years before there is a United States. So my my book will cover the period essentially from uh, the rise of Cahokia around the turn of the first Christian millennium 
to the more or less simultaneous Pueblo revolt of 1680 and the arrival of William Penn in 1681. And the Oxford History Series is a narrative history series. Uh, and so it allows me to do a lot of things that I was doing with Morton, focusing on individual character, looking for agency, looking contingency, setting scenes, and basically telling it as a story. I mean, the Oxford History is a narrative sequence. There are fantastic books about early America that are out there by, you know, leading scholars like Dan Richter and Alan Taylor. I mean, books which are really great. And I would encourage everyone to read. Um, and, you know, Jill Lepore's recent These Truths. I mean, it's not that people are lacking whatever. I hope that I bring into this discussion something about um, working it out as to expense possible in a really rigidly chronological sequence where I'm not separating New England, you know, one series of chapters from the Chesapeake, another series of chapters, but instead looking at yeah. what happened in 1620, what happened in 1621, 1622. Now, there are times as a historian that does know his work, but I'm trying as much as possible to tell this story of an America that emerges uh, and emerges, I believe, that by 1680, we see elements that would become foundational to what would eventually become the United States. So that's what I'm working on. I've written a very long draft of it. It needs a lot of work, but with luck, you know, maybe it comes out in, you know, 23 or 24. That's the plan at the moment, I think. Well, I'm going to go ahead and, and request to book you now to come back on and talk about it once it's, <laughs> once it's reached print. If, 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 when this book sees print, I'll be happy to do that. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, that's great. Well, this has been a conversation with Peter C. Mancall, author of The Trials of Thomas Morton, an Anglican lawyer, his Puritan foes, and the battle for a new England. You can get your copy now from Yale University Press. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Ryan, thank you. It was a real pleasure. And, and, and thanks again for the chance to talk about Thomas Morton. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of the New Books Network. Visit our website at newbooksnetwork.com where you can find our catalog of over 10,000 interviews on books in any discipline that you could possibly want to hear more about. That's it for now. And I hope you have a great day.